Well, please keep your Bibles open there to Acts chapter 2, and let's continue in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for these words you have caused to be written by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we can know you and that we can live for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please continue to speak to us through your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was in primary school, walking home from school one day with a friend, and we were walking across an oval, and in the corner of the oval there was a grate, a metal grate, it's about a metre wide by a metre long, and it was covering a pit about a metre deep just to drain the oval. And, and my friend said earlier in the week he'd been there with another friend and they'd made a pit, like a, a, a pit trap like you see in the cartoons. And he said, do you want to make another one? I said, oh, that sounds fun. That was pretty stupid and foolish when I was young. And so we proceeded to make a pit, took the metal grate off, put sticks over the top of it, leaves, grass to make it blend in with the rest of the, rest of the oval. And just as we thought it was looking really good, uh, an old man came up behind us and shouted, sprung. Yeah, we might laugh at it. It was pretty serious and um, sad. Uh, his, his son, earlier that week, had fallen into the pit that my friend had made and broken his arm. And so I felt terribly guilty. Um, that kind of deep, heart-wrenching guilt feeling that you sometimes get. And you, you, probably, you probably know that kind of feeling that I'm talking about. I think that's the kind of feeling these people had in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, although much deeper. And, and as we go through this passage this morning, we've got two headings, and the first one is, the Spirit-enabled Word converts the crowd. And so Peter's just delivered this majestic sermon explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if I could summarize it in two points, it would be firstly that the coming of the Holy Spirit means that the, day, the last days are upon us. That is, that the judgment is coming. And secondly, the coming of the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is God's ascended King and judge. That's Peter's sermon. Judgment is coming. Jesus is the judge. And throughout the sermon, Peter's really convicted his hearers. Look at verse 23. He says, you crucified and killed Jesus. Or verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And we see the response of the crowd in verse 37, if you look at it with me. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, this is the response of people who know they're guilty. They're cut to the heart. They're desperate. They're humbled. And that's what the gospel will do. When, when you realize that you're on the wrong side of God's judgment, you can't act as if everything's okay anymore. You're humbled. You're guilty. You're cut to the heart. You're crushed. And Peter gives this really beautiful answer to their desperate cry in verse 38. Look at verse 38. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is incredible. These people have been responsible for killing the King of Glory. If you think about it, that is the worst sin in all of human history. But this shows the incredible mercy of Jesus. You know, when you kill a king, normally what you can expect is swift vengeance. Look at the mercy of Jesus here. Even these people, they can be forgiven. 
the worst sinners. You know, even I can be forgiven. Even you can be forgiven. The mercy of Jesus is incredible. And it fits with God's diary. Remember God's diary that Mickey's been holding up for us? Every day on God's diary, what's there? The proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Porphos. That's on God's diary. And that fits with what Peter is proclaiming here. And Peter says to this crowd, you can do two things to respond. First, he says, repent. Which literally means to change your mind. To turn around. To stop going your own way and start going Jesus' way. Repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism is a very graphic symbol that you identify with King Jesus. You're submitting to his baptism in his name. It symbolizes the washing from sin, and it means you're putting yourself under King Jesus. You're all in with Jesus. I remember early on when I was taking the youth group, I was on a summer camp one, one year, and when the, on the summer camp, when the year 12s are finishing up, they do a little farewell for these year 12s, and, and they, they were farewelling one of the year 12 girls. And they were saying some nice things about her. They were saying what a fun person she is. You know, she's the life of the party. She's got good dress sense. She's lovely to everyone. And as the cherry on top, she trusts in Jesus too. And I thought, this is tragic. I don't think this girl's a Christian yet. See, Jesus, he, he can't just be the cherry on top of your life. If you're a genuine Christian, Jesus is your life. When you're cut to the heart and desperate for forgiveness and he offers it, you just want to be plunged into everything Jesus has, baptized into him, into his name. So his life that he gives is now yours and your life is now his. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. I'm very thankful to say that that girl has now genuinely turned back to Jesus and trusted in him. But I want to say if you've never done this, If you know judgment is coming and Jesus is the judge and you've held off for whatever reason repenting and submitting to King Jesus and stop leaving it off. Today is a good day to repent and trust in Jesus. You know what? We're doing baptisms in two Sundays time. So come and chat with me or one of the other pastors and we can arrange a baptism as well. Verse 39 has this amazing promise if you look at it. It says the Holy Spirit is for everyone. Everyone, near and far. People get themselves in all kinds of tangles about whether or not they have the Holy Spirit. Uh, You might have read the bulletin letter this week where Mickey talked about his experiences, confusion about whether he has the Holy Spirit when he was a new believer. Some churches say you only have the Holy Spirit if you speak in tongues, like everyone was in verse 4, if you see it there. The strange thing is those churches don't also insist on having flames on your head like in verse 3 but peter explicitly says that those miracles on the original pentecost were a sign that the prophet joel was being fulfilled they were unique signs for when the gospel broke through new frontiers and verse 39 is actually meant as a great comfort if you sometimes get confused about whether you have the holy spirit because peter doesn't say listen here's a particular experience you need to have to know you have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, here's a particular feeling you need to have. He says, verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. That is, turn around, submit yourself to Jesus as King, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
If you have genuinely put your trust in Jesus as your King and as your Saviour, the promise here is that you have received the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise. It's in black and white in His Word. It's not based on fleeting feelings. We have it in His Word. He says the promise was for those who were at the first Pentecost, it was for for their children, and it was also for those who are far off, people like you and me today. And at the end of verse 39, we're reminded that it's ultimately God's work. It says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, the Bible, it sees no tension between saying, you need to do something, you need to repent, you need to be baptized. And the fact that salvation, it's actually ultimately God's initiative. It's God's doing. It's those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And did you notice in verse 40 that Peter agonizes with these people? He loves them. And so he keeps on exhorting them with many other words. He's, he's passionate about them escaping judgment. And that's a passion that the Holy Spirit gives. He says at the end of verse 30, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourself. Trust, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus. If you look at verse 41, there's a really helpful exercise I heard from another preacher. What I want you to do with verse 41, if, if you look at the first four words, after that, just cover over the rest of the sentence. So just look at the first four words, cover over the rest of the sentence with your, with your hand or with a few fingers. And if you look at those first four words, they say, so those who received, and then under that, you can't see it because you've got your fingers over it. But I want you to think about how would you describe people who have just trusted in Jesus from Peter's sermon. Verse 41, so those who received what? How would you describe them? Remember this is Pentecost. It's a great day of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't we expect it to say, so those who received the Holy Spirit? But look at how it describes these new Christians. It says those who received his word. See, this is actually the essence of receiving the Holy Spirit. It's the essence of being converted to Jesus. You receive the word. It's not rolling around on the floor or barking. It's receiving the preached word of the apostles. So it says, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, 3,000 people, this is incredible. I mean, think about it. After Jesus' public ministry, what did, what did he have? How many followers did he have? Chapter 1, verse 15, he had 120 followers. That, that's fewer people than we have in this building right now. Some people might think Jesus was a loser, a failure. That's all he had to show for his ministry? 120 people? Well, it's no wonder he told his disciples that they would do greater works than him. Do you remember? It's no wonder he said... It's better that he departs so he can ascend as the risen king and send forth his spirit. Because in one day of the Holy Spirit, the church grows by two and a half thousand percent. That is incredible growth. You think of a CEO, be paid millions for figures like that. And today we have the amazing benefit of looking back on 2,000 years of the work of the Holy Spirit See, Christianity, it wasn't spread by the sword. It wasn't spread by government edict. It was spread by one person telling another person about Jesus who told another person about Jesus. What looks so ordinary 
That gospel word is what the Holy Spirit has used time after time after time to grow his kingdom. And we get to see the fruit of it. What started out as 120 scared people now has become millions and billions of people submitting themselves to King Jesus. That's the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through his word. And in the face of all kinds of pressure, those first readers of Acts, they could take comfort and assurance that God was indeed working through his word and by his spirit to bring people to King Jesus. How much more can we be assured today when we face all kinds of pressures that God is continuing to accomplish his purposes, bringing people to the Lord Jesus? So that's our first heading. The spirit-enabled word converts the crowd. Our second heading is the spirit-enabled word creates community. And if it helps you remember, just remember all the CCs. Converts the crowd, creates community. If you look at verse 42, we see that the Holy Spirit's community is devoted to four things. First and primarily, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Everything else flows out of this. It's like when the Holy Spirit converted the crowd, a school was founded. These new followers, they enrolled in kindergarten and they sat at the apostles' feet to learn as much as they could. And that makes sense. What created the community, the Spirit-enabled Word, that's what the community continues in. And someone might ask, how, how can we devote ourselves anymore to the apostles' teaching when the apostles aren't here? Well, that's why you have that book that you've got in front of you. That's why we have the Bible. That's the apostles' teaching right there. That's how a community will continue to grow. And that's why if you want to find a truly Pentecostal church, you need to look for a church that is devoted to teaching the Bible. If someone asks you what kind of church St. Thomas's is, you could say we're we're an Anglican church, we're a Christian church, you could say we're evangelical, we're reformed. You could also say we are a Pentecostal church. Why? Because we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. You know, we've gone through some big changes under Mickey's leadership. The biggest one is probably the central discipleship groups. And they've been fantastic. It's really lifting the bar for leaders so that they're better prepared to be able to run the Bible studies with the members. It's lifting the bar for the members as well. But it's a really great expression of this, of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The second thing they were devoted to in verse 42 was to the fellowship The early church loved being together, sharing life. We'll see in a couple of verses that they gladly shared their worldly possessions as well. And again, this is what the Holy Spirit does. By his word, he creates a community that is shaped by the love and generosity of our Heavenly Father and so loves each other. It says they also devoted themselves to breaking bread. They ate together. These folks were really in each other's lives. That's why it's always so encouraging to see people eating together here at church, whether it's after church down at morning tea whether it's at dinner before central discipleship groups, whether it's people getting each other into each other's homes. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see friendships being formed amongst believers. And that's what the Spirit-enabled Word does. People who have nothing to do with each other apart from Jesus being brought together and enjoying fellowship with one another. The fourth thing we see them devoted to is the prayers. And this is because a new relationship has started. Perfect access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. You know, one of the most encouraging things for a pastor to see is after church, two or three heads bowed in prayer together. Just taking the time to pray for one another. Or if you've ever been to the prayer meeting, it's amazing. 
uh, when we had the Vision Sunday prayer time, uh, a lady who'd never been to the prayer meeting before came up and asked me, is that what the prayer meeting is like when you have that? I said, yes. And she said, I'll definitely be there then. It's wonderful. God's people being together, lifting our needs before the Father. So make sure you got it in the diary. Wednesday the 15th of November. Someone said that the prayer meeting or the strength of the prayer meeting is an indicator of the spiritual vitality of a church. I think that's right. Samuel Chadwick wrote that Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Let's keep making prayer more and more a part of our everyday lives. You know, when you're with a brother or sister and you know there's something that you're talking about that we just need to bring before the Lord just to say, stop. Say, let's stop. Let's take a moment to bring this to the Lord. Devote yourselves to prayer together. So these are four wonderful things the early church was devoted to. And if you've read through Vision 2030, you look at the values for our church in Vision 2030, you'll see they match up very well with these four devotions of the early church. This is what it looks like to be a truly Pentecostal church. And we see the results of these devotions in verses 43 to 47. There was great awe or reverence among the people. Verse 43, they could see that something weighty was going on. At the end of verse 43, I want you to notice it says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, this is important to Mark. People sometimes wonder, why aren't there any of these um, amazing miracles that the apostles did in the church anymore? But do you notice that these miracles in the early church weren't performed by everyone? They were always done through an apostle or through someone who was closely associated with them. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul calls them the sign of a, the signs of a true apostle. Now, you might know the word apostle, it just means sent out one. And so they, they were signs that these men were truly sent by Jesus and that they have the authentic message. And now the, we have the Bible, it's been authenticated for us. We don't expect to see the same kind of miraculous workings of the apostles in the church today. And so you can imagine this early church community. They're all there in Jerusalem. They're hearing the apostles' teaching. They're seeing these miracles that accompany it. They're enjoying fellowship and meals and prayers together. And remember from a couple of weeks ago that they actually gathered from all around the world. So many foreigners had come to Jerusalem for the festival, and now it seems like the Christians are sticking around. It's like the first ever Christian convention, except it's an impromptu one, and it's going for an extended period of time as they enroll in the apostles' kindergarten for new believers. In verses 44 to 45, we see this beautiful generosity where everyone is providing for each other's needs. And this was necessary when many of them were visiting from around the world. But notice that there's nothing coercive about it. No, no one was compelled, like in communism. They wanted to. They delighted to. In verse 46, people still own their homes to meet in, and so it's not like everyone sold their place. What's happening here isn't Christian communism, but it is radical Christian generosity. Christians seeing a brother or sister in need and giving what they can to help, even when it's costly. It's the loving response to the amazing generosity God has shown to each of us. And if you've been at our church for any period of time, you will have seen this in action here at St. Thomas's. 
Now, people don't shout it from the rooftops because Jesus told us not to do that about our giving, but I'm aware of people who have given very generously to the needs of others here. It could be in terms of money or accommodation or time. I even know of people giving dental care to others very generously. Or you might have seen it this week, um, Martin and Nick starting the GoFundMe to raise money for what? It's to raise money to help fund the school over in Angaruka, Tanzania. So many people here, not just giving to the needs of Christians here in our church or in Australia, but around the world. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens our hearts in generosity for the needs of others. In the end of verse 46, they're doing it with glad and generous hearts. They've gone from hearts cut with guilt to hearts filled with gladness. Isn't that beautiful? They're praising God while they do it. Verse 47, the Lord daily adds to their number those who are being saved. And this is also really important. In the coming chapters, we'll see trouble come upon this early church with persecution and many other problems. But for now, we see this beautiful picture of the early church at peace. The Lord will add to their number as they go through times of difficulty. But it's good to see the Lord also adding to their number in this time of peace. And do you remember most of the time when the New Testament uses this word Lord, it's referring to Jesus. And so if you go back to the opening verse of the book of Acts, Luke says the first, uh, the first book was all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's happening in chapter 2 and the rest of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach. And so if you look at the title in your Bible for the book of Acts there, which isn't in the original, it probably says the Acts of the Apostles. But that's actually a pretty rubbish heading because that's not what this book is about. It might be better to say the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he's at work. But even then, that's not quite adequate because these are the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus, what he continues to do. As we come to the end of chapter 2, we see the Lord Jesus adding to their number and we're reminded that just like Peter said, Jesus is ascended and ruling. He's building his church because ultimately these are the acts of the risen Lord Jesus by his Holy Spirit working through his apostles as they teach the word. So we've seen a spirit-enabled word converting the crowd and the spirit-enabled word creating the community. Let's pray that God would continue to do that amongst us and around the world. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that Jesus is risen and reigning. Thank you that he sends forth his Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the work that your Spirit-enabled word did that first Pentecost, converting the crowd, creating the community. And Father, we pray you would continue to do that amongst us here at St. Thomas's and amongst your faithful churches around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.